Welcome to Old Boys Club, a podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a stupid question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I'm a Melbourne-based journalist and I used to work very briefly in politics. My name's Matilda Bosley. I'm also a Melbourne-based journalist and I also used to work very briefly in politics. What? No, you didn't. No, I'm just preparing, like, I'm just sort of prepping myself for the day that I'll just, like, take the 100k pay packet and, like, <laughs> fucking sell out. You'll never hear from me again. <laughs> I'm in Canberra, baby. I'm going to fix some sex scandals. <laughs> okay, well, coming up on the show today, we are going to explain three stories you've probably heard a lot about over the years that have all come to a head in the same week, last week. I'm exhausted. Well, first up on the show, you may have seen a lot of headlines warning that the government is overhauling the Medicare system. Are we suddenly going to have to start paying for all our health care? No. Don't. Listen to everything every politician says all the time. Okay, we're going to explain. Next up, the federal government agreed to a $1.8 billion settlement with the victims of the illegal Centrelink robo-debt scheme. But what is robo-debt and how did the government fuck up this bad? It's one of those words that, like, you hear and you're like, yeah, robo-debt, I know what that means. And then someone like is, is like, what's robo-debt? And you're like, fuck. <laughs> a good a, point. A bad thing? Yeah. And finally... We're going to catch you up on the story of the Billawilla family after their youngest daughter was medically evacuated from Christmas Island with sepsis and untreated pneumonia. What's been their legal battle so far? Is there any chance that they'll be ever settled in Australia? We're going to dive into it all. But first, Matilda, how's your week been? Oh, Justine, <laughs> we're in a battle. We're in the battle for censorship, for the freedom of speech, <laughs> for the ability for everyday Australians to access important information about native animals that they need. You sound like a conservative politician right <laughs> now. <laughs> I've got beef with TikTok. <laughs> what happened? So um, I'm not sure if I've actually mentioned this on the podcast previously. I am uh, technically a professional TikToker. It's, it's, <laughs> it's something that you love to admit and then very quickly go, oh, no, but don't no, worry, no, no, that's no, not I'm, my whole job. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a journalist too. <laughs> So uh, I make informational news TikToks for the um, Guardian Australia, which is where I actually uh, work normally. Can I say, you make very successful TikToks. Like you are like, you have command an audience. Can you stop it? And also this week I don't apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what happened? What happened? Okay, so I'm making like a fun little video for the weekend. Uh, Our amazing science reporter Donna Liu has created this amazing story about echidnas erections and I thought it would make a great TikTok. So I make this whole TikTok. Do I include graphic photos of an erect echidna penis? Four-headed erect echidna yeah, penis. Yeah, this yeah. is the detail that you just left out. That, that echidnas have four, four, a, a four. four-pronged penis. Yeah, so they you, you thought there was a lot of dickheads in Canberra. Oh Check my out God. this echidna penis. Oh, my God. It's got four heads. And, and it, it turns is- out only two of them become erect at a time. If you want to find out why, watch my TikTok. So I include this rather graphic photo. I do give a warning. And a video. Oh, and an even more graphic video of the little alien penis, like, reaching around. <laughs> Becoming like. erect. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you want to watch the 
get an erection. I can't even get through this. Anyway, I think it's a great fun video and it's very fun and it's weird sending your editors a story being like, hey, the dick TikTok's ready. Um, <laughs> but uh, TikTok didn't, doesn't seem to agree. So I think that it's purposely not pushing out the video because it's only got 400 likes at the time of writing, which is very, very small for Yes. Can I, can I say that, Matilda, you've, just for context for people who, who are listening, um, one of your TikToks had like um, 1.2 million views and like... Okay, 1.5, but let's not even get it. Okay, yes. Your TikToks <laughs> regularly get a lot of views yeah, and a lot yeah, of likes. Yeah, so yeah, 400, yeah, yeah. for some people, that is like a, a wonderful day for... For others, it's it's a failure. And it's just honestly a bit insulting to the echidnas. <laughs> <laughs> and, no, but people should be allowed to see a video of an erect echidna penis if they want to. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'll, I'll drop a link if you're needing that sort of phallic content in your life. <laughs> yeah, check out our link tree on Instagram and it'll, it'll just be like, dick talks, see here. <laughs> dick talk. How was your week, Justine? <laughs> I love how that inspires you to ask me about my week. Um, so something that I've been kind of struggling with with this part of the show every week is that my weeks are not that interesting. And yet every week we've created this expectation where I've got to tell some funny anecdote from the week. I don't my life is very boring, Matilda. I don't I don't have I don't have funny content every week, particularly this last week. I've been, to be very honest, kind of depressed. Look, the fact that you were wearing a matching sweatsuit definitely <laughs> didn't apply that at all. I, I think a combination of just like being very busy at work and then very busy with this podcast. And, and then very locked down. And then very locked down um, has culminated in me just being like, oh, I just feel low. So what do I do when I feel low? I try to distract myself with weird shit on the internet or horror thriller films. Now, Alex did not want to watch A Quiet Place part one or two this week, so we went for funny content instead. Alex, (laughs) get your shit together. (laughs) Support your partner. But instead, we discovered this New Zealand very funny absurdist humour show on SBS, so anyone can go watch it for free. It's called Creamery, and it's about a world where all the men have died. It's like COVID-19 happened, <laughs> but it was 100% lethal and it only targeted men. So all the men have died. So women are living like this happy utopia together. Vibe. Yes. And then one of them discovers a man who ha- is a survivor. Um, and it's, it's just like these three incredibly funny Asian New Zealand women as they're trying to deal with this like survivor man they've discovered. Now, I will warn you guys, if you want to go watch this, that the last episode, it's only six episodes for the season, um, but the last episode, the cliffhanger it leaves you on is fucked up weird. Ooh. But the rest of the season is is very good and and just like I think very everyone would enjoy it. So go watch Creamery on SBS. That's nice. my – I don't have a funny story, but I, do, I can direct you to something else that will make you laugh. I like that your recommendation is like, oh, you know, high concept – Drama TV, comedy <laughs> drama TV show, and mine is a video of a platypus's okay, dick. Okay, you say it's a high drama TV show. Can I just say those two things are way more similar than you think they are? <laughs> so if you like the Echidna video, you'll probably like this TV show as well. Although there's less penises in yours. You'll see. <laughs> <gasps> 
I saying, Matilda? I'm like, <laughs> I have nothing funny or interesting going on. We've been doing so much shit on this podcast. What Mate. A, run me through some things. You've been busy because we've given ourselves like eight extra jobs. Yes. Run me through some things we've done recently. We've launched a newsletter. Yes. We went on the She Is Legend podcast. Amazing. Check it out. Go listen. Yes. We. What else have we done? We launched... Question time. We launched Question Time, a new series where we interview people adjacent to politics. Yes. And we just have a new weekly episode every we, week. Yeah. A lot of stuff. And if you would like to keep up with all this stuff, because we can barely keep up with it, go follow our Instagram <gasps> at Old Boys Club Pod. And if you would like to join a community of people who like listen to this show, you want to make some friends, talk about politics, you can join our Facebook community. Uh, old Boys Club Podcast Community it's on a, Facebook. It's a group on Facebook, yeah. So go join. People have been like posting stories they like during the week, commenting. It's really nice. And it's where you can keep up to date with stories as they happen, such as the Medicare story that we're going to dive into right now. Oh, I Medicare about that. <laughs> so, Matilda, I keep hearing Labor politicians telling us that Medicare is about to be totally, like, obliterated and changed for the worse. What's happening? Okay, so what we're about to see happen is the biggest overhaul of the Medicare system in a decade. And that sounds extremely dramatic. Yes. And what it means is that there's going to be amendments to 900 items on the Medicare benefits schedule. Okay, wait, what is the Medicare benefits schedule? Okay, so you know Medicare. The green card that I use to help me pay for healthcare services in Australia. Yes, yes. Yeah, so basically the Medicare benefits schedule is a big long list of every procedure that the government is willing to pay a little bit of. Okay. (laughs) Okay. To be clear, and I think this is where a lot of the confusion has come in, this isn't referring to uh, like procedures you get done in like a public hospital. If you get hit by a bus and get taken to a hospital, this list doesn't come into it that much. This is when you're either going to a private practitioner, a private surgeon, getting stuff done at a private hospital, or you're a private patient in a public hospital. Okay, so the Medicare benefits schedule, this list of procedures and the amount of money the government's going to pay for you to have them done applies to people who are going to have them done like in a private hospital or as a private patient. Yeah, because even in our sort of like the private half of our medical system, the government still chips in. Ah, okay. I didn't actually know that. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's always <laughs> like we have a really fucking good medic- medical system compared to most countries. I've just always gone to public hospitals, so I had no idea. Okay, so the government is going to overhaul 900 items, um, yes. items on this list. Why is this overall happening? Why are these changes happening? Okay, so the MBS, as we like to call it, the Medicare benefit schedule um, has gotten a bit rusty. In the last couple of years. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Not every procedure is on the Medicare benefit schedule. Mm-hmm. But the list of what they will cover hasn't really kept up with the times. So mm. there's a lot of like double ups and there's some things that should be one and they're actually like five different things. It's become unruly. It wastes a lot of practitioner's time with a lot of paperwork. Okay. So the MBS kind of sounds like that junk drawer that everyone has in their home <laughs> and you keep like shifting things around and they're adding new stuff. You've got some like old thing that's way out of its use by date far in the back you just need to like tip the drawer out and start again yeah and in 2015 the medical community was like the government please fucking tip the drawer out and start again and the government said yeah okay and they created the mbs review task force okay yeah um so the last five years 2015 to 2020 they have been tipping it out and rebuilding it from the start and in the end they decided that out of the 5,700 
items on that list, 900 needed to change. And that they delivered that report end of December last year. And now the government said, this is here, here it is. And this is all coming into practice on July 1st. That seems like a very short period of time. Oh, yeah, it is. And so that's where all of this controversy has started. Okay. So I guess the biggest question that I have, Matilda, is, is this going to cost people more money, less money? Yeah, that is the question. And the problem is that we don't fully know. Okay. So it sounds like a lot of the anxiety is just coming from the fact that people don't know everything that's going to change. Are there any other concerns that people have had about these changes? Yeah. So the other big concern is about the timing of these changes. It doesn't seem like there's been a lot of time between the report being given to the government at the end of last year, the changes being announced recently, and then them coming into effect. So the government announced that we're instituting this revamp, it's all changing, like in June, early this This month. month. (laughs) Yeah, this month. And then they said, and this will come into effect from July 1st. Ah, like and three or four weeks. Yeah. And a lot of doctors are were like, mm, it's nearly a thousand changes. There's already surgery scheduled for July. <laughs> and we've already told our patients how much those surgeries are going to cost. Mm. I think the word chaos has been thrown around a bit, but I think it's worth making the note that doctors are not saying that this overhaul is a bad thing. Yeah. Like the so the head of the Australian Medical Association, who's like he's like the big boss doctor. Like if you could <laughs> if you could like have like the sort of ultimate robot doctor at the end that you need to face, that's Omar Caution, um, the head <laughs> of the president of the AMA. He said like. We're happy that this overhaul is happening. We This is overdue. It needs to happen. We need more than fucking three weeks to deal with it, though. Yes. But would you know that if you only listened to the Labor Party's messages the last couple of weeks? No. So the Labor Party has come out very strong against this announcement. And there's a few reasons for that. The big one being that Medicare was invented by a Labor government. So they love Medicare. It's something that they'll staunchly defend But also, this is a really good campaigning opportunity for them. Yeah, we are the safeguards of Medicare. We will protect this until our dying day. We will not let this dirty liberal government fuck with Medicare in the middle of a fucking pandemic. You heard me right, Morrison. This is my um, Anthony Albanese impression. Was it too much? (laughs) Are we going to lose people? (laughs) Are we going to lose people? (laughs) Possibly. But the point stands that... This has been a major campaigning point for Labor this past week. Almost every Labor politician has come out with this on social media. They've done press conferences about how the Liberal government is trying to take away Medicare. And there has been suggestions that this is going to turn into an election campaigning point in the next federal election um, for Labor. And the reason why is because during the last federal election campaign in 2019, Medi-scare. Medi-scare. Campaigning on the grounds that Medicare was going to go backwards under a Liberal government was something that was very successful for the Labor Party campaigning in the federal election last time. Not successful enough that they won. Oh, no. (laughs) But it was a very successful campaign. Now, given a lack of transparency about these changes, for all we know, there could be things in there that people think are universally quite bad. But- to run with it to the point where you're saying that this is going to be like detrimental to Medicare, it's a little early for Labor to do that. So keep an eye out to see what the changes actually are in the next few weeks. 
So Justine, the federal government has agreed to a $1.8 billion settlement with the victims of this illegal Centrelink robo-debt scheme. It's big news. Everyone's talking about it. But what is robo-debt? <laughs> okay. It's true. Robo-debt is something that we've heard in the media for the last several years. And it's possible that you don't quite know what robo-debt means. Yeah, I think it's like everyone knows that it's something that the Liberal government messed up a bit. But yeah, walk us through what the specifics actually are. Okay, so robo-debt is the name given to what is called the online compliance intervention. Oh, that sounds like a fucking Black Mirror plot. (laughs) (laughs) That that just struck me how sinister that sounds to begin with. (laughs) What this scheme was, so back in 2016, the government launched an automated debt recovery program to be used by the Department of Human Services. Now, for those who don't know, the Department of Human Services, they run Centrelink. And what's Centrelink? Centrelink is a government organisation that gives uh, money or they call like welfare benefits to people who might be experiencing unemployment, people who live with disability, pensioners, veterans, basically people who can't work or don't work full-time jobs. The central link in the welfare support system, if you will. Yeah. So the government wanted to create an automated system that would be able to track whether people were properly reporting their income to Centrelink because the amount of money you get from Centrelink depends on the amount of income you're you're earning. Mm. And they wanted to find a way for a computer basically to determine whether someone was reporting the correct amount of income they were receiving against their ATO data, so their taxation office data. Because I'm, I'm assuming that it was t- fairly time intensive when you have actual officers sitting down trying to like match up how much someone earned versus how much they say they did. Like that, it, that seems like it would be a lot of manpower involved in that. Yes. So previously, if Centrelink thought there was a discrepancy between what you said you were earning versus what you were actually earning, they would have a staff member do an investigation and write to you asking for you to provide more information, evidence that you were earning the amount that you said you were. And with the end result being that if there was a discrepancy, you would end up paying back the government the extra amount that they gave you. The money they gave you that you weren't supposed to be getting, basically. Instead, after this new automated robo-debt system was brought into effect, this automatic system would compare the amount of money you told Centrelink you were earning with the amount of money that the Australian tax office had you down as earning that financial year. So they would just like automatically compare that and then they would send you a letter straight away saying, this is your debt, pay it now. Appeal it if you want. Without human eyes touching upon that first. Exactly. Sounds like a system that could be rife with problems. Were there any problems with robo-debt? So one of the biggest problems with robo-debt was this thing called income averaging. So I'm going to explain this income averaging via an imaginary person. Okay. Call her Justine. Okay, her name's Justine. (laughs) So let's say Justine last year, she was unemployed for two months. And so for those two months, she applied and was receiving Centrelink money while she was looking for a new job. Now, say she got a new job and that new job paid $100,000 salary a year. Oh, that's Canberra money, baby. (laughs) Yes, that's Canberra money. So she's earning- Picked for the ease of maths, not for a reflection of an actual salary. Yeah, that was picked for for mathematical ease. So she's earning $100,000 for the next 10 months. She she gets that, that annual salary. Now, what the robot would do at Centrelink using this income averaging system is 
Look at the ATO data about how much Justine earned that last year. And it said she earned about $80,000 plus in 10 months because she's on this great new salary. But what the robot would do is not really clock that she only earned that amount of money for 10 months. The robot would average that amount of money she earned over all 52 weeks of the year. Oh, okay. So assuming that that $80,000 plus is her like actual salary, which yeah, yeah. which would not be nowhere near the sort of threshold for actually needing to receive Centrelink. Yes. So when you average an like annual income like that over all the weeks, then Centrelink, the robot would be like, hold on, we were paying you two months of welfare benefits, but according to my averaging calculations, you were earning salary during that period of time. So you need to pay back all that money that we gave you while you were unemployed. Even though she was unemployed for two months, like 100% eligible for that money. Yes, totally qualified for that money. It's just that the robot fucked up. Like that's that's the simplest way to put it. It's it was just it was incorrect. it was an algorithm that they didn't think through properly, right? Yes, and so there were all these cases where people had been unemployed for a certain period of time and receiving benefits. There were cases of people who had unstable work that year, so the robot did not take any of that into account. And a lot of people were hit with these debts when they were entirely eligible for Centrelink benefits during periods of the year. So they're getting these letters for thousands of dollars worth of debts, and like we're making the example of someone who's earning a hundred grand a year. There was a lot of people who were just getting by, who were suddenly receiving these letters, owing massive amounts of money, like really significant portions could wipe them out totally, Mm. right? Absolutely. There was another problem that this automated system had, which is really important, which was situations where if somebody had given even slightly wrong details, not about like how much they're earning, but about their employer to Centrelink, if there were tiny discrepancies between the name of the employer that they gave to Centrelink versus the name of the employer that appeared on their tax records, Centrelink would think they were two separate employers and think that you actually had been holding down two jobs with two incomes that you hadn't told Centrelink about. Oh, that, yeah. And and when I say like discrepancies, if someone had a typo in their boss's name that they gave to Centrelink, the robot would be like, oh, John without a H who's employing you is giving you 40000 a year. According to the tax records, John with a H has been giving you $40,000 a year. You've actually been earning $80,000 a year from two different employers. <laughs> so that's the kind of like processing errors that were occurring. God, okay. So there's there's clearly some significant problems with this system. How much was this system being used? How big was this? Oh, this was fucking huge. So to put it into perspective, before the RoboDebt automated system came in, there was an average of 20,000, they call them interventions per year. So situations where they wrote to people and were like, hey, we think that you owe us some money. Okay, 20,000 a year. 20,000 a year. After the automated system was brought in, that became 20,000 a week. It's a lot of it's a lot of letters. Yes. And so between 2015 and 2019, when the RoboDebt scheme ran, the government raised $1.76 billion in debts against 443,000 people. Of that, the government pursued over 380,000 people and unlawfully recovered over $750 million in debt. And they, when I say pursued, like they contracted private debt collectors to contact these people and chase them to get this money. Okay, so you're saying that they've unlawfully recovered this debt. Who determined that income averaging, using a robot to do income averaging, was an unlawful way to pursue these sort of things? Yes, yeah, so this happened in 2019. So at the start of 2019, 
Legal Aid Victoria went to the federal court and challenged the income averaging scheme. And by the end of the year, the federal government agrees to orders by the court that this income averaging process was unlawful. Mm. And not only that, the federal government decides to stop using the robo-debt income averaging method as a way of solely calculating people's debts. And I'm assuming this has sort of paved the way for the bigger case that we were talking about this week, exactly, right? Exactly. T- tell me about this week's case. What actually happened in the courts? Yes. So last year, Gordon Legal launched a class action on behalf of all robo-debt victims. But before the case could even go to trial, at the end of last year, the government settled the class action outside of court. Like this is a big settlement. And the government agreed that they were going to repay at least 381,000 people the $751 million that they'd taken from them in the debt collection. So all those people who'd been contacted, who had given over money, they were going to get that money back. So what happened this week was that the federal court, months after this settlement happened, they gave legal effect to the settlement. So they said, yep, cool, like this settlement's going to go ahead. And not only did they do that, they added $112 million in interest, which is going to be split amongst all of the victims of robo-debt, depending on like how big your original debt was, how much hardship you faced, how long you know you were chased by robo-debt collectors. So you're getting your money back, your debt's wiped, plus some money for the pain and suffering that you've been through. Exactly. And there were some really significant and important statements that the judge made this last week in court. I feel like you're ramping up to a quote. Hit me with it. I am ramping up to a quote. So the judge said, quote, the proceeding has exposed a shameful chapter in the administration of the Commonwealth Social Security System and a massive failure of public administration. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons that people say that this is such a cruel chapter in Australia's history is the fact that if you're on Centrelink, you are probably in a really vulnerable position. You know, you're either unemployed, you might be living with a disability, you might be a veteran. Like you're you're going through a time in your life where you can't work full time and you're probably trying to make ends meet with the money that you have. So for them to then issue a debt on top of that, you can put yourself in those people's shoes. That would be really terrifying. Yeah, definitely. The, this whole episode is different things that Labor can use to attack the government, isn't it? <laughs> oh, my gosh, I'm just realising we're just going, this episode is just explaining the three pillars of Labor's next campaign, isn't it? <laughs> I think also it's worth mentioning if you're keen to read up more on robo-debt, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely go check out the reporting by Luke Enriquez Gomes. Has won many awards for this very, uh, very justly. He has been sort of the forefront of this story for years and years and years. And also uh, my colleague and his fun. Go go read his stuff. (laughs) So for our final story, we're talking about the Billawilla family a refugee family who've been held in detention on Christmas Island since 2019. Now, they've come back into the media spotlight this last week after their now four-year-old daughter, Tanaka, was medically evacuated to Perth after developing sepsis from untreated pneumonia. Now, the reason we're saying now four-year-old is because the day we're recording this, Saturday, is actually Tanaka's birthday and she's spending it in hospital in Perth. With poisonous blood. And actually she has never had a birthday outside of detention. Yeah, that really puts it into perspective. Mm -hmm. So first up, Matilda, let's clear up a pretty common misconception about them. Is their last name actually Billawilla? No. Okay, what is (laughs) their name? (laughs) So their last name is Murugupan. Billawilla is in fact the name of the rural Queensland town that they have lived for a number of years. And it's also the town that really desperately wants them back. Okay, so let's rewind to how the family came to Australia. So the parents, Priya and Nardes, 
How did they come here? Let's start with Priya. So the mum, the mum Priya. So in Sri Lanka, since the 80s, there's been a pretty violent civil war, lots of civil unrest. The Sri Lankan government versus the separatist guerrilla warfare type Revolutionary group. kind yeah, of group, yeah. Group called the Tamil Tigers. And Priya and Nades are both ethnically Tamil. So uh, Priya, back in the year 2000, her fiancé was allegedly quite brutally murdered Mm. by the Sri Lankan army. So after that happened, her and her family flee Sri Lanka and go to India. Then 13 years later, she ends up coming on a boat as a refugee to Australia. Now, the fact that she arrived in Australia by boat is important. So just tuck that away in your mind for later. Hold that thought. Okay, so that's Priya for the moment. Let's swap over to Mm Nadez. So back in 2001, Nadez, what he says is that he was conscripted or forced to join the Tamil Tigers. When you are associated with this separatist group, the Tamil Tigers in any sort of way, shape or form, whether it be voluntary or not, it means that you are then at a very increased risk of persecution from the Sri Lankan government and from the armed forces of the government. Right. And that's what happened to Nadez, to the point where in 2004 he flees Sri Lanka and moves to Qatar. And he bounces around between Qatar and Kuwait for a while and during those years goes back to Sri Lanka to visit his family three times. And that's also important. Another important fact, hold on to that. Yeah. Then in 2012, he does a similar thing to Priya and he arrives in Australia as a refugee by boat. Both of them are going through the immigration process. They end up on bridging visas and then through the Tamil community in Australia, meet each other, fall in love, end up getting married in the town of Biloela in rural Queensland, creating a life there. In 2015, they have their first daughter, Kopika, and in 2017, they had their second daughter, Tanaka. So the whole time this is going on and they're starting their lives, they're still going through this quite rigorous immigration process in which they're appealing to have their status as refugees formally recognised by the government. And that's not going great. And at the start of 2018, both Nadez and Priya's bridging visas expire. And the day after Priya's bridging visa expires... Border Force arrive in their Biloela home at 5am, raid their house, take all four of the family into custody and drive off in a van into the night. Walk me through what happens next. Yes. So the family are sent to Melbourne and put in immigration detention there. While they're in immigration detention, they try and appeal the government's decision to not let them have refugee status. Their town, they were staging vigils and protests the moment that this family gets (laughs) taken away. Yeah, I know. People tend to think of like rural Queensland is quite conservative and like, you know, not really for protesting or activism. Oh no, the town of Biloela, they are hardcore activists. They are like absolutely fuck you, Border Force. (laughs) We want our fucking family back. (laughs) Yes. Very Liam Neeson in Taken. Like they have special skills. They know how to make posters. They're going to use them. genuinely been holding vigils for years. Yes. So at this stage, the dad, Nardes, has already exhausted all avenues of appeal. So the mum and the eldest daughter, Priya and Kopika, they launch an appeal against this government decision to deport them by claiming that, no, they do have refugee status, but at every level it's failing. But I think it's worth laying out why the government has come to the decision that this family shouldn't receive refugee status. Yes. So um, for Nada specifically, remember when we talked about the fact that he had gone back to Sri Lanka Three times. We did tell you this fact was going to be important. That's being used as, I guess, proof that 
mm, well, he can't have been too worried about persecution from the Sri Lankan government. He hasn't gone back since being in Australia. And that fact, the, the fact that he'd gone back three times, that was actually referenced in this decision along with another fact. That applies more broadly to the whole family. Yes, which is that the Sri Lankan civil war ended in 2009. Yeah. So they're like, look, it's been a long time since that happened. Are you at the same risk of persecution as you were when you first fled the country? So things aren't looking good there. And the family try and appeal the decision to the High Court of Australia, but they just deny the application to even review the case. So it's really looking as though the family are going to be sent back to Sri Lanka. Oh, yeah, it's really looking like it. And at this point, we're up to August 2019. Yeah, the family have been in detention in a Melbourne detention facility for more than a year at this point. And without warning, the family is suddenly taken to Melbourne Airport to be presumably deported, and dozens of people flood the airport trying to stop this from happening. They're on the plane. The plane's about to take off. No, the plane's literally taken off. They're in the air and then bring, 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 bring. <laughs> Who is it on the phone? It's it's a judge. They've got a judge on the phone who's ordering for them to like land the plane. They're ordering an injunction, which basically means to stop an action, on the basis that, yes, they've exhausted the legal avenues for, for- Nades, for Priya, for Kopika. But there's hope. Wait a second. For the tiny one. Tanaka. Yes. All this family's hope rests on this tiny baby and her ability to apply for a visa. And so the reason why this injunction was granted is because immigration officials had not yet assessed her individual claim for protection and a visa in Australia. Wait a second. So we're talking about these kids getting a visa, having a claim. They were born in Australia, right? I think that's something that strikes people as quite surprising, that we don't have birthright citizenship. Yeah, I didn't know this before researching this segment. So in Australia, it matters far less about where you are born. What matters for Australian citizenship is whether your parents are citizens or permanent residents. But if you're born in Australia and not only are neither of your parents like Australian citizens or permanent residents, but they're people who've come by boat seeking asylum, you do not have a right to Australian citizenship. So this injunction is called the family enter this new legal battle over whether Tanaka can even apply for a visa. And while this is all being sorted out, the family are sent to none other than Christmas Island. Matilda, what is Christmas Island like? Yeah. What are the conditions there like? Sounds like a happy place, doesn't it? It. I always thought it sounded so lovely growing up. Like you want a holiday at Christmas Island. Yeah. No. One of the main reasons we talk about this island a lot is because of the detention centre. So what are the conditions like? There was a time where the whole family was, all four of them were sleeping in one bed. They have guards following them wherever they go. Kopika, she started primary school recently. She's got guards who have to take her to the primary school and then back to jail at the end of the day. Like, Imagine like leaving the school grounds to go back to prison. And there's also been some questions about the health systems that Mm. are available in the detention centre. Back in the early months of detention, the family were only allowed out for like half an hour a day. And this resulted in Kopika, the older daughter, becoming vitamin D deficient. When Tanaka was two, two of her teeth had to be surgically removed because they had become so rotten. So there's been questions about this before. And that brings us to this week. So last Monday, Tanaka is medically evacuated from Christmas Island and sent to Perth Children's Hospital. What was happening in the lead up to that, Matilda? Yeah, what the family has said is that since the 24th of May, Tanaka was unwell. They go to the health practitioners within the detention centre. They say, look, she looks fine. 
give her some Nurofen. She's still unwell when it comes to the next Sunday. I think they diagnose her with a UTI, even though she's got an earache and a stomach bug that aren't even consistent with that. Then by the next Friday, it's got to the point where Tanaka is vomiting. This comes to a head Sunday. Tanaka's now been vomiting, diarrhea, is very sick. She gets to the point where her fever is 40 degrees Celsius, Mm. which is not good, I learned. Um, no, it's bad for an adult, but in a kid, that is like you send them to hospital. Yes, and they did. They sent her to the local hospital in Christmas Island. They determined that she has septicemia. Her blood is poison. She's medically evacuated by plane to the Perth Hospital, and at Perth Hospital, it's also determined that she has been suffering from untreated pneumonia, and that's what caused this septicemia. Mm, so maybe all those times they offered a neurofin, she had pneumonia. Yeah. I mean, look, there is a lot of questions. Now, the government, what they've said is that the medical facilities at the detention centre are sort of broadly the same as what is available to all Australians. Technically speaking, the broader population of Australia could just take their child to the hospital if they were worried. Like, they don't need permission to do that, but like, I guess. Um, And basically, they say, look, we do not accept that there was any sort of medical mistreatment in this scenario. Sure. And while that might be true, what the government is saying, I would like to point out the fact that a few minutes ago you told me that at the age of two, this toddler had to have two of her teeth removed because they'd rotted. And it's concerning that any child, but in particular a three-turning-four-year-old, would not only get pneumonia but have her blood become poisonous. So I just I just want to temper any kind of government lines with the facts that we have in the situation. And the facts here do not speak to the government's, what the government story is. I also just think that if a kid turned up at a hospital with untreated pneumonia that got to the point where she was septic, child protection services would probably want to have a chat to that family. So you can see why this whole scenario has really brought the Billowheeler family case to the fore of public consciousness. Like, we've been thinking about it pretty consistently for a few years, but it's really come to a head this week. So what is the political situation that they're in? Tell me about what's going on with Tanaka's legal case. Tell me how all the politicians are reacting. Lay it all out for me. So to understand what Tanaka's legal case is about, you need to understand that Tanaka, as the daughter of, this is like the legal quote, unlawful maritime arrivals. Yikes. And so because she's the daughter of people who arrived by boat seeking asylum, she is not allowed to apply for a visa in Australia unless the Australian government home affairs minister intervenes. And the home affairs minister used to be Peter Dutton. It's now Karen Andrews. Yeah. Okay. Less bold, similar policies, as we'll see. (laughs) It's an apt description. And in Tarnica's case, the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton at the time, said, no, we're not going to make this exception for you. We're not going to let you apply. So Tarnica's case rests on whether there was this thing called procedural fairness in the government's decision to not let her apply. We also, by the way, are totally aware of how ridiculous it sort of this whole conversation is. It's just weird that we're talking about like the legal case of this bubba. (laughs) And whether she's allowed to stay with her friends in like Did this actual baby have procedural fairness? It's just the whole situation's weird. Yes, so this is what her legal case rests on though. And things were looking really hopeful. So last April, the federal court said that she'd not been given procedural fairness when her request to apply for a visa back in 2018 was rejected by the government. And then this year in February, the full court of the federal court upheld that decision because the government tried to appeal it. But they were like, nope, you did not give this kid, this bubba, procedural fairness, 
do it again. Okay, so what happens now? So part of the appeal outcome was that the current immigration minister, this guy called Alex Hawke, now has to re-review Tarnica's case. So that decision is now before Alex Hawke. But there are other ways that the family could get resettled in Australia. Okay, so tell me about the other ways. So there has been huge amounts of public uproar over the last few years over the Billowilla family. But that has gained whole new ground this last week when you see like a tiny child screaming in pain at the fault of the government, not a great look for the government, really mobilizes a lot of people across the political spectrum. So there's been a lot of pressure on the government this last week to resettle the family because all it takes for this family to be resettled in Australia is for the Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews or the Immigration Minister Alex Hawke to sign on the dotted line. Yeah, the ministers in this case, like we've been talking about all of these procedures, all of these appeals, there is also just the power for them to just like give them a visa. Yeah, they right? don't have to like, pass this in parliament. They don't need to like get bipartisan approval or anything. They can just do this. Like you can make exceptions for individual people on individual cases and guess what? They do it all the fucking time. Yeah, there are more than 4,000 cases of ministerial level intervention in visa situations. And also like Peter Dutton personally has made these choices as well. Yes, and so for this last week, all eyes have been on the federal government, whether they're going to succumb to public pressure and let the family resettle in Australia. Are they? No. It was looking really hopeful, though, okay? So earlier this week, the new Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews, the one who's less bald but with the same policies, she was asked about the family and she said, quote, that she was considering a range of resettlement options. Well, actually, she said she was considering a range of resettlement options for a number of different circumstances. Appropriately vague. But then all hope was dashed on Thursday when Karen Andrews went on that breakfast show sunrise, you know, the one with the cash cow, very appropriate for these kind of government announcements. And she said her statement about considering resettlement options wasn't about the Billowilla family because three out of four of those members as we said earlier, have been denied refugee status. So very hard line, still saying they're not refugees, we're not going to help them. So from there, we've had this line developing from the government, from a lot of people within the government, saying that we cannot allow the Billawila family to live in Australia permanently because doing so, because they arrive by boat, would be opening the floodgates. That's the word used, opening the floodgates. So what are these floodgates? So... For many years, the Liberal National Government has had this stance that they want to stop people coming to Australia by boat. Their justification for this is that a lot of people die at sea when they come by boat and they don't want to allow people smugglers to capitalise on on desperate people's ambitions to come to Australia. And essentially risk that people could drown at sea. And there's been a lot of debate about whether that's really the true motivation or if it's part of a broader anti-immigration policy. But the situation we're in at the moment is that they're suggesting that because the Billowilla family essentially has become such a public case, that it will really set a bad precedent if these people who arrive by boats are allowed to go back to Billowilla. Yeah, so one way this family could arrive home is that the government just let them, and that's seeming less and less likely. What are the other ways? Okay, so there's two other options. So the first option is that we get a Labor government next federal election because the Labor government have really campaigned and promised that if they're elected, they're going to, one of the first things they do, sign on the dotted line, let the family come back to Australia. Is that going to happen at this stage? Not likely they're going to win. The second thing that could happen, this is far more likely, is as I said earlier, it's now up to Immigration Minister Alex Hawke 
whether he's going to let Tanaka apply for a visa. It's possible this is going to happen because several liberal backbenchers have been campaigning for the Billawilla family to come back to Australia. So, hope. That being said, Alex Hawke does work for Scott Morrison, a man who has a statue in his office of a boat reading the words, I stopped these. So clearly something close to ex-immigration Minister ScoMo's heart. That's all we have time for today. Uh, Welcome to Labor 2022's election platform. We're calling it now. (laughs) Um, Before we go, we have some people to thank Justine, don't we? Yes, let me take it away. Thank you to M, Liz, Tegan Shian, Charlie, Catherine, Selena, Lauren, Evangeline, Meg, Tanil, Amy McMahon, Jess, Liv, Naomi, Ashley, Sebastian, Wasteland Review, and Fantastic Food. Thank you so very, very much. If you would like to be shouted out in a similar way, just take a screenshot right now, right at this very second of are you listening to Old Boys Club podcast? Pop it up in your Instagram tag at Old Boys Club Pod. We'll shout you out. It helps the show so, so, so much. Yes. And the other biggest thing you can possibly do to help us out is go on to iTunes or whatever podcasting app you're using and leaving us a review. It really helps other people see the show. Or hit subscribe or follow if you're listening on Spotify or another platform. I love it. Please do it. No, please do. And when you do shout us out on Instagram, we see this like huge growth in our numbers the week that we have lots of people shouting us out. So it really does help us and we appreciate it so much. We appreciate it You have the power, people. (laughs) Before we go, we'd also like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Burrawang people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we would also like to acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. The theme music for our show is created by the amazing Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced, mixed and edited by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. I'm Matilda Bosley. I'm Justine Landis-Hanley. And this is Old Boys Club. That's what I'm going to do. You harmonize with it. Okay. You keep changing key though. So oh, okay. Just... Sorry. Pick a key. <laughs> you pick a key. Okay. A minor. Go. Hallelujah. 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 <laughs> Fuck. I went up. I fucked it up. I fucked it up. I wasn't in choir. <laughs>